let's open our Bibles now to 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 15, we're going to put in at verse 13. Lord willing, we're going to go through chapter 16, verse 13. The topic we're going to find there is this. Barefoot and tearing their clothing in anguish, David nevertheless instructs his servants as he flees for his life. The title of our message, No Shoes, No Shirt, Still Serving. Let's have a word of prayer. (laughs) Father, you're good to us to give us your word. And even better, Lord, that the Holy Spirit is our teacher and that by his ministry, Lord, our hearts can be open to see Jesus Christ revealed Uh, in what was written so many centuries ago about something totally obscure and yet relevant for us as well. And so bless us as we work through these verses. Help us to see ourselves in the text and to see Jesus. We pray in His name and those who agreed said, Amen. If you've planned a day at the beach for body surfing and sunbathing, a storm is going to ruin your day. But what if you're taking a sailing class and you need to complete a unit on foul weather sailing in order to pass the final exam and get your certificate? Well, in that case, a storm is what you're looking for. If you've been a Christian even a short time, you know that following Jesus is no day at the beach. Storms come. For some of you, the storms never subside. They uh, go on for your entire life. Do you want to be a body surfing sunbather? Or do you want to be a foul-weather sailor? Well, I can tell you the answer of the Apostle Paul while you're thinking of yours. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, he said this, I want to know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being conformed to His death. Paul's choice was to experience the Lord in the storm. He called it knowing the fellowship of His sufferings. Jesus Christ's sufferings releases in our lives the power of His resurrection with the result that I know Him by personal experience. That's the kind of knowledge He's talking about. And not just by objective information. Information about Him gives way to intimacy with Him. Now our section here in 2 Samuel presents folks who wanted to know David and were willing to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings to do so. We'll also see some people who wanted to forego his sufferings. It'll give us the opportunity to ask two questions around which I'll organize my thoughts. Number one, do you want to know Jesus in the fellowship of his sufferings? Or, number two, do you want to forego the fellowship of Jesus' sufferings? Let's take a look, first of all, in chapter 15 at the fellowship of his sufferings and knowing him in them. Now, David's treacherous son, Absalom, had been plotting to overthrow his father and seize the throne. He was up in Hebron. He announced that he was the rightful king. David is in Jerusalem. He puts his plan in motion and word comes to David, uh, David excuse me, in verse 13. Now, a messenger came to David saying, the hearts of the men of Israel are with Absalom. What a sad thing to hear if you're David. David's own people rejected him for someone who had done nothing for them and certainly did not love them. It reminds you of Jesus, who in his first coming came to his own people, but his own people rejected him. 
Oh, how he loved them. And yet they preferred a criminal to be released to them, an insurrectionist named Barabbas, while shouting for Pilate to crucify the sinless Son of God who had come to save them. Jesus was a man of sorrow, as we're told. He was acquainted with grief. If you're going to follow him, you too will have plenty of opportunity to be rejected by men, to be treated with contempt, to experience loss and loneliness. The only question is whether you will grow closer to him or forego sufferings for the relative comforts and conveniences of this world. Now, several individuals in our story were faced with the opportunity to identify David in his sufferings and thereby grow closer to him. We're going to look at them fairly rapidly and make application to ourselves and to our walk with the Lord. Verse 14, So David said to all his servants who were with him at Jerusalem, Arise and let us flee, or we shall not escape from Absalom. Make haste to depart, lest he overtake us suddenly and bring disaster upon us and strike the city with the edge of the sword. And the king's servant said to the king, We are your servants, ready to do whatever my lord the king commands. First note David's heart. He would flee, he would become a fugitive, so that the people of Jerusalem would not be slaughtered as collateral damage in a fight with Absalom. David would bear the reproach of fleeing the kingdom barefoot and weeping in order to spare them uh, those things. You know, there's plenty to be said about David and his sin with Bathsheba and his uh, ordering of the murder of Uriah and, and his failures. But every now and then, as you're reading through, you understand why he is called the man after God's own heart. Because here, when he could have dug in and said, I'm the king, get my mighty men around me. This is gonna, if he wants a fight, he's going to get one. This is going to be a slaughter. He understood that innocent people stood in between Absalom and him uh, and that ultimately a lot of them would be killed. And he said, I'll, I'll bear a reproach so that the people will be spared. It's the kind of thing Jesus would do. Now, his servants, were told, were with him. These are probably butlers and bakers, maybe a few candlestick makers. Uh, they never signed on for this kind of thing. And there's an indication in the text a little later that they most likely could have stayed in Jerusalem and lived under the new king. Absalom didn't have a bone to pick with bakers and butlers and household servants. In fact, he needed a staff there at the household. And uh, so, uh, you know, they come to work one day and all of a sudden David said, I have to flee uh, because my son is taking over the kingdom. They refused to, uh, to, to stay behind. They would rather follow their king, submit to him. It says, do whatever their lord the king commanded. If serving him now meant suffering then they would do it in order, why? To remain with him. That's the only motive that there is. They're, they're not going to be serving him in the same way anymore. They're not going to be cleaning and baking and doing all the things that took place in the palace. They're just going to be with David. Here's the lesson. When you face difficulties in your service to Jesus, and you will, it's to give you the opportunity to show that you are really just all about being with him. It doesn't really matter where you serve or how hard it gets in your serving, because it's the fellowship with the Lord that you care about. And so when something happens that you know isn't quite the way you want, thought it was going to be, and things take a turn for the worse, Jesus is standing there, and, he's, and, and it gives you the opportunity to say, hey, I just want to be with you, Lord. If this is where and how and when you want me to serve you, then let's do this thing together. 
because it's always been about you. Verse 16, and the king went out with all his household after him, but he left ten women, concubines, to keep the house. Why leave anyone behind to keep a desolate house? Well, it showed that David anticipated his return. At least symbolically, it shows that he anticipates a return. When exactly he'd return was absolutely uncertain, but in his absence, they were to keep the house. Now, this idea of serving an absent Lord who has promised to return, that ought to sound familiar to you and I as New Testament Christians. It's what we are called upon to do as we await the imminent return of Jesus Christ to resurrect and rapture the church. Jesus said, I'm going. I'm going to prepare a place for you. I'm coming back for you. You don't know exactly when it's going to be. It's imminent. And in the meantime, I want you to occupy until I come and work in the household of faith. And so looking at David's servants, do you think that they kept the house with zeal? Or do you think that they slacked off given the situation that was unfolding and the fact that David was absent and not around really to uh, judge them? It's the classic situation of doing everything as unto the Lord because you anticipate his any moment return. If you slack off and become lazy, lazy, excuse me, then you're not all that excited about seeing the Lord. Uh, when you're serving the Lord and you decide to slack off and take time off and just let it slide, then you're communicating to the Lord, I- I'm not really wanting to see you at this moment. I don't think you could come back right now. And if you did, I wouldn't be ready for you. But so what? Uh, you know, be like a bride, you know, on her wedding day. And, and not that she's you know, has to be ready on time because it takes a lot to get, you know, the bride ready. But it'd be like her just coming out, you know, everybody's in their tuxes and all. She comes out in, you know, just her regular everyday clothes, no makeup, her hair still up in a bun, you know, that kind of thing. Hey, I'm ready to be married. Now, if that's your thing, I guess I, I've just offended you. But uh, it's a great illustration. Most brides want to look a little bit better than that, a little bit better than they normally do or that they ever do. But... Uh, you know, on that day. And so it's like, yeah, but it does. It communicates something. You can't help. I mean, maybe you think, oh, this is wonderful. You know, we're so casual and this is real life. But I know what you really think. You think, guy, what a, what's going on here? Couldn't she at least one day in her life get dressed up? I mean, where I'm dressed up, I'm dressed better than the bride, you know, and that kind of a thing. Because it communicates that, hey, I, this is, you know, this is the best I'm going to give you. And, and so, uh, you know, when, when we slack off in our service, it, it says that. But as we maintain our pace, even accelerate it with the Lord being gone, it shows an intimacy with the Lord. There's a certain suffering to this waiting. But as we get into it, it brings intimacy. And so verse 17, the king went out with all the people after him and stopped at the outskirts. Then all his servants passed before him and all the Cherethites and the Pelethites and the Gittites. When I was a young Christian, we used to say the Outisites and people would laugh, but now no one knows what that means. In fact, I realize every Sunday, Pam tells me, no one knows what you're talking about. (laughs) I always make what I think is some pop culture reference. And then, you notice how I sometimes ask how many of you have heard of this and people, yeah, I don't know what you're talking about. And the king said to Ittai the Gittite, Why are you also going with us? Return and remain with the king. I'm in verse 19. I don't know where you are. For you are a foreigner and also an exile from your own place. In fact, you came only yesterday. Should I make you wander up and down with us today? Since I go, I know not where. 
Return and take your brethren back. Mercy and truth be with you. But Ittai answered the king and said, As the Lord lives and as my lord the king lives, surely in whatever place my lord the king shall be, whether in death or life, even there also your servant will be. So David said to Ittai, Go and cross over. Then Ittai the Gittite and his men and all the little ones who were with him crossed over. Now this is another group of servants who joins them at the outskirts These were David's honor guard. These were soldiers. Among them was one Ittai, a Gittite, city in Gath, which is Philistine territory. And so he is a Philistine mercenary soldier. Mercenary uh, soldier who is in it for the money. Doesn't have any real national loyalty. They just want to be paid to do what soldiers do. Seeing he had only recently arrived, David said, stay and serve whoever was king in Jerusalem. David isn't acknowledging that Absalom is the rightful king. He's simply stating that since Ittai had come as a mercenary to be paid to serve the king, he could still do that. What difference would it make to a mercenary? Ah, but we learned that Ittai did not come to serve the king of Israel. He came to serve David. He and his entire household would serve only David. So we find out that though by definition he was a mercenary soldier, he was anything but a mercenary in spirit. What happens when dreams and plans fall through? Well, you find out if you are a mercenary rather than a servant. The mercenary is discouraged and depressed, maybe even angry. The servant finds his Lord in the suffering and recommits himself to Jesus. Ittai said, yeah, David, uh, whether, not only have I come to serve you, but whether it's through life or through death, I'm here for the long haul. That's a, it's, a, it's kind of a hard thing to, to, you know, to be faced with God you know, in the person of Jesus Christ saying, now Gene, are you a mercenary, Gene? Are you in it? Not so much for the money or for the glory. What are you in it for? What are you getting out of life? Are you getting fellowship with me? Or is there something else that you've been looking for? Verse 23, And all the country wept with a loud voice, and all the people crossed over. The king himself also crossed over the brook Kidron, and all the people crossed over toward the way of the wilderness. One minute, they'd been dwelling in the palace. The next minute, quite literally, they were wandering in the wilderness. What is the way of the wilderness to us? I think here we're talking about lifetime distresses, prolonged illnesses, losses of many types, both personal and material. We're talking about those things for which you weep and weep and weep, which in many cases are not going to go away. Jesus has walked there too. He who arose from the dead and ascended from Mount Olivet first walked in humility. He suffered in Gethsemane and then later at Golgotha, the place of the skull where he was crucified. No one can comfort you like he can because no one knows you like he does. Verse 24, there was Zadok also and all the Levites with him bearing the Ark of the Covenant of God. And they set down the Ark of God and Abiathar went up until all the people had finished crossing over from the city. Then the king said to Zadok, carry the Ark of God back into the city. If I find favor in the eyes of the Lord, he will bring me back and show me both it and his dwelling place. But if he says thus, I have no delight in you, here I am, let him do to me as it seems good to him. The Ark of the Covenant, complete with the lid called the mercy seat. Those of you who remember Raiders of the Lost Ark, 
pop culture reference, uh, which I'm pretty confident in. Uh, if you haven't seen that, I don't know what to say. Uh, but uh, yeah, anyway, uh, so the ark actually is the box underneath the lid, which was called the mercy seat. It's that really cool lid with the angel wings that touch in the center. All of it together is sometimes called the ark, but it's really two separate pieces of furniture. Uh, sometimes the Israelites would carry this out of the temple or the tabernacle into battle with them or uh, in, in different ways. And so Zadok was doing what he thought was right and proper in bringing the ark to accompany David. He's the, he's the priest and he hears about what's going on and he forms a plan to bring the ark with David so that the presence of God will follow David wherever he goes. And you know what? I like that. Don't you like that? Isn't that a great idea? If you were the priest, wouldn't you want to do that? Of course you would. And then immediately Zadok is told to bring the ark back. And the only way of looking at this is that David reproved him. It was gentle, but it was a reproof. I mean, you're Zadok. This is your big idea. This is your big contribution to this moment. David, here's the ark. Let's go. You and the presence of God and the glory of God... This is really fantastic. And David says, "Um, yeah, we're just not going to do that. I want you to take the ark back. Nobody really told you to bring the ark. It's okay. I understand. But that's not what God is doing right now. If you have a zeal to serve the Lord, sooner or later, you're going to experience someone telling you, no, no, don't bring the ark out. In fact, bring it back. Now, it's the Lord telling you that, but it usually comes through some huge, a human agency, some authority figure over you, a pastor, an assistant pastor, an elder, somebody like that. You've got an idea. It's a great idea. There's nothing wrong with the idea. It's a spiritual idea. It's a spiritual ministry. But for whatever inextricable reason, after people pray about it and seek the Lord, yeah, the answer right now is no. Now, what are you going to do? Well, if you're Zadok... Are you going to bring the ark back? Are you going to say, well, you know what? How many of you want to follow the ark with me? We're taking the ark. David's crazy. Well, no, obviously he took the ark back and and he submitted to the authority of his king. Uh, Sooner or later, we're going to be tested in this area. And often I find that we simply press forward, unwilling to seem defeated in the eyes of men. We make things work out in order to save face. Or... Some cases we quit serving the Lord either for a time or for good. No matter how long you've walked with the Lord, no matter how much authority you think you have, somebody along the line is going to tell you no, and you're going to have to decide if you're going to enter into a not-my-will-but-yours-be-done fellowship that can only be experienced after that kind of gentle rebuke. Or if you're going to say, no, Lord, my will is going to be done in this matter Uh, I don't know who these crazy people are that you've put over me, but you and I are going to go forward. Uh, And so it's a really kind of an interesting situation that, uh, you know, Zadok is in here. Uh, But the king also said in verse 27, Are you not a seer? Return to the city in peace and your two sons with you. I'm uh, Ahimaaz, your son, and Jonathan, the son of Abiathar. See, I will wait in the plains of the wilderness until word comes from you to inform me. Therefore, Zadok and Abiathar carried the ark of God back to Jerusalem, and they remained there. Zadok had a spiritual gift. He was a seer. He had the gift of prophecy. That could be useful to David for Zadok to inquire of the Lord and then report the word of the Lord to him via the two sons that are mentioned. 
Now, knowing how Zadok was gifted, David said, are you not a seer? In other words, do what God has raised you up and gifted you to do. God says to you and I, are you not a husband? Are you not a wife or a father or a mother or an employee or an employer? Or in the church, he says, are you not? And then he reminds you of the gift or gifts, the roles and offices that he has given you. The point I'd make here is this. In my roles, in my offices, and by the gifts God has given me, am I bringing glory to Him? Am I content to, as it says, remain there, wherever there is for me, and work out my salvation, no matter how dull or difficult it may seem? If I will do that, I'm exactly where Jesus was in His incarnation. He fully humbled Himself. He lived what we would call a dull life, for 30 years, then a difficult one for the final three and a half years. And yet it brought glory to his father. It was what his father called him to do. Jesus, the son of God, the God-man, for 30 years lived an absolutely obscure life without Wi-Fi. Nothing going on there as he learned the carpenter's trade in a tiny little city and all. And yet when he comes onto the ministry scene, it is then that God says, Oh, this is my beloved son in whom what? I am well pleased. And then he goes on to have three and a half years of very, very interesting ministry, which end with outward failure. Only one disciple at the foot of the cross. The rest scattered, everybody else refusing to follow him. There was a conversion at the cross, uh, on the cross with the thief, and then at the foot of the cross, the Roman centurion. Uh, But relatively, uh, you know, from a human point of view, it was a big failure. And yet Jesus submitted to it all. And, and, you know, through it all, I guess the, uh, the Father could have said to him, Are you not the Messiah? Are you not the Savior of the world? This is the path, then, that you must trod. You must have a dull life than a difficult life in order to save those you've come to save. Verse 30, So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives. He wept as he went up, and he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up, weeping as they went up. Then someone told David, saying, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. And David said, O Lord, I pray, turn the counsel of Ahithophel into foolishness. Now it happened when David had come to the top of the mountain where he worshipped God, there was... Hushi coming uh, to meet him with his robe torn and dust on his head. David said to him, If you go on with me, then you will become a burden to me. But if you return to the city and say to Absalom, I will be your servant, O king, as I was your father's servant previously, so I will now be your servant, then you may defeat the council of Ahithophel for me. And do you not have Zadok and Abiathar, the priests, with you there? Therefore it will be that whatever you hear from the king's house... You should tell to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Indeed, they have there with them their two sons, Ahimaaz, uh, Zadok's son, and Jonathan, Abiathar's son, and by them you shall send me everything you hear. So Hushi, David's friend, went into the city, and Absalom came into Jerusalem. There's obviously a lot going on here. Uh, I want to concentrate on one thing, one word, actually. It's the word friend in verse 37. Hushi identified with David in his sufferings. He worshipped with him. And then he left being called his friend. It's a fitting end to the theme we've developed in this section of verses. We've been talking about a growing intimacy with the Lord. We've been talking about being friends more than merely followers. You know, there are those who get upset when we act too familiar with the Lord. 
They say we do not show him enough awe and honor by being too casual. I think I understand what they mean, but after all, it was Jesus himself who called us his friends. John 9.15, he says, No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. And so the Lord wants us to enter into an intimacy with him. And so notwithstanding, I understand that, you know, uh, some people really like very formal kind of liturgical worship and all of that. And I do understand that we can become, we can become disrespectful and irreverent in our worship of the Lord. I think the answer is in the middle where Jesus says, hey, I, I, want, I want to have an intimate relationship with you. I want you to think of me as your friend. And so, you know, I, I don't want to make fun of anybody, really. Uh, but, you know, some people say, well, you have to get all dressed up to go to church. You have to wear your Sunday best. I always tell them, this is it. This is our Sunday best, you person, you. But anyway, no. But, uh, you know, so, but the idea is when you go to visit your best friend, do you think, oh, I've got to put on a suit and a tie and polish my shoes because I'm going to see my best friend and they can only see me at my best. Hey, the whole idea of a best friend is that they know things about you that no one else does and you're hoping they don't tell anybody. And, and so that's the thing. Sometimes, you know, Jesus said, I want you to be my friends. And by that, I mean, I want you to have a distance from me and talk in King James English and dress up and have a very strict liturgy and never have fun in church. I see you having fun. What kind of a friend has fun? And, and so, again, we can take it too far, but some people don't take it far enough. I'd like to be described like Hushi, wouldn't you? Wouldn't you like somebody to summarize your day by saying, so Gene, Jesus' friend, went to Walmart. And even though the devil was out about as an insurrectionist and a rebel, Gene was able to minister to people he encountered about what it means to have a personal, intimate knowledge of God. I think that's how you want to be described. And so to know him by experience, you must share in the fellowship of his sufferings. Do you want to forego the fellowship of his sufferings? Not everyone is ready to sign on for this. Concerning modern Christians, Stuart Briscoe wrote the following. He said, there is no shortage of people in the world today who are longing for a closer walk or a deeper commitment. And there is no shortage of man-made answers to these expressed needs. However, there's one thing that is distressingly common in many of these answers, and that is the absence of any idea of cost or suffering involved. Without bringing up any particular program, uh, there's lots of programs that sweep through the church, lots of temporary you know, Bible studies or whatever it might be, and they all promise you a closer walk, a deeper relationship with the Lord. And what they essentially end up being, nothing wrong with this, is Bible studies that look at things from a little bit of a different angle than you've seen them before. But almost none of them ever require a commitment or any kind of suffering or have any cost other than the cost of the materials that you get to keep. Uh, you know what I mean? And so a lot of times people say, hey, I want to do this. And we say, well, why don't you go here and do that? No, that's not what I had in mind. I wanted to get together with some Christians. You know, yeah, well, there's a ministry that needs to take place over here. Well, I don't have the... Uh, that would cost me some time. It would cost me some money. It would cost me some effort. That's a sacrifice for me. Cha-ching. Now you're talking. 
Now, that's what the Lord is saying. Do you really want a closer walk with the Lord? Maybe you should quit praying after today. You won't pray anymore. I want to have a closer relationship with you because the Lord says, right on, here comes some suffering your way. I'm going to have to bring you into the fiery furnace if you're sincere about that. No cross, no crown. Still many rather forego suffering. See a couple of examples as we quickly close this chapter. When David was a little past the top of the mountains, there was Ziba, the servant of Mephibosheth, who met him with a couple of saddled donkeys and on them 200 loaves of bread, a 100 clusters of raisins, a 100 summer fruits and a skin of wine. These were loaded donkeys, man. Low rider donkeys. I mean, these poor guys. And the king said to Ziba, what do you mean to do with these? And Ziba said, the donkeys are for the king's household to ride on. The bread and the summer fruit for the young men to eat and the wine for those who are faint in the wilderness to drink. Then the king said, where's your master's son? And Ziba said to the king, indeed, he's staying in Jerusalem. For he said, today the house of Israel will restore the kingdom of my father to me. So the king said to Ziba, here, all that belongs to Mephibosheth is yours. And Ziba said, I humbly bow before you that I may find favor in your sight, my lord, O king. Mephibosheth, you'll remember from previous uh, studies, the crippled son of Saul, the former king of Israel. David had shown him amazing mercy. Now Ziba speaks of his defection. All of this would be wonderful except for one minor detail. Ziba outright lied about Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth never said these things. He was loyal to the king and he'll set the record straight in chapter 19. Taking a bird's eye view of Ziba for a moment, we see someone whose goal was to get the suffering king to reward him. He wasn't really interested in having fellowship with the king, especially not in suffering with him. He gave to the king, but what he gave cost him nothing. It certainly wasn't a sacrifice because it wasn't his at all. Let the king suffer. But get something out of it for yourself was his plan. Sadly, Ziba represents far too many modern believers. They wish to forego suffering, only giving what costs nothing or very little. Yet they expect Jesus to go on blessing them, especially in the physical and the material realm. They come looking for blessing, but they give nothing. It costs them nothing. They don't see the discrepancy. One author wrote, Many Christians are satisfied with expenditures in which there is no shedding of blood. They give away what they can spare. Their gifts are detached things and the surrender of them necessitates no bleeding. They engage in sacrifice as long as it does not involve life. When the really vital is demanded, they are not to be found. They are prominent at all triumphal entries and they will willingly spend a little money on colorful decorations, on banners and palm branches. But when hurrahs and hosannas change into ominous murmurs and threats and Calvary comes into sight, they steal away into safe seclusion. All I want to say this morning about that is that there's no intimacy in that approach. The Lord isn't your friend, really, if you forego his sufferings and demand his blessings. Then there was Shammai, 
Verse 5, now when King David came to Bahurim, there was a man from the family of the house of Saul whose name was Shammai, son of Gera, coming from there. He came out cursing continuously as he came. And he threw stones at David and all the servants of King David and all the people and the mighty men were on his right hand and on his left. Also, Shammai said thus when he cursed, Come out, come out, you bloodthirsty man, you rogue. The Lord has brought upon you all the blood of the house of Saul in whose place you have reigned. And the Lord has delivered the kingdom into the hand of Absalom, your son. So now you are caught in your own evil because you're a bloodthirsty man. Then Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, said to the king, Why should this dead dog curse my lord the king? Please, let me go over and take off his head. But the king said, I like him, by the way. But the king said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah? Let him curse, because the Lord has said to him, Curse David. Who then will say, Why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and all the servants, See how my son, who came from my own body, seeks my life. How much more now may this Benjamite? Let him alone. Let him curse. For so the Lord has ordered him. It may be that the Lord will look on my affliction and that the Lord will repay me with good for his cursing this day. And as David and his men went along the road, Shammai went along the hillside opposite him and cursed as he went, threw stones at him and kicked up dust. Quick word about Abishai. He was a loyal, devoted servant, so he would belong in our first grouping this morning. He was willing to follow David in his sufferings, but if he could... He wanted to end at least part of the suffering prematurely, in this case by murdering its source. David had to teach him something none of us like, patience in suffering. Essentially, David says, no, be patient. Let God have his way in this suffering. Who knows what the result will be? Now, back to Shammai. He was the original proponent of the First Amendment right of free speech. A relative of Saul's, Shammai hated David for his ascent to the throne and he followed him throwing rocks at him, kicking up the dust and cursing him. Knowing the whole story that God had chosen David to replace Saul, who had faltered badly, we might say that Shammai's real issue was with God. David, for a time, showed unusual kindness to Shammai. What can we make of this? Well, I think we can see Shammai as a non-believer who thinks Christians are their enemy when really the problem that they have is with God. They see only the sufferings of mankind and they either blame God for it directly or they declare that he's not the king he claims to be because he allows suffering. For his part, we know that God is long-suffering with non-believers, not willing that any should perish, but rather that they would come to know him and enjoy eternal life. Non-believers think they would prefer the rule of the previous king. But in that case, it would be Satan who stole the dominion over the earth from Adam and Eve back in the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the rightful king, but they won't acknowledge it. For our part, we should show them the goodness of God. We should be Christ-like in our approach and in our response to them. I mean, you know, there are plenty of Abishais that want to just cut the head off of are those that oppose Christ. And then there's David who's Christ-like and says, I'm not willing that they should perish. Let's be long-suffering. Now, I reference the words of the Apostle Paul, that I may know him in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. C.A. Coates wrote the following, and it will be a fitting conclusion for our time together this morning. He said this, The knowledge of Christ in glory was the supreme desire of Paul's heart. And this desire could never exist 
without producing an intense longing to reach him in the place where he is. Hence, the heart that longs after him instinctively turns to the path by which he reached that place in glory and earnestly desires to reach him in that place by the very path which he trod. The heart asks, how did he reach that glory? Was it through resurrection? And did not sufferings and death necessarily precede resurrection? Then the heart says, nothing would please me so well as to reach him in resurrection glory by the very path which took him there. Let's pray.